because of what's been happening to Anthea and so on. There's just been too much else to do. But I'm just going to open it again next week, and I'm going to put up uh, all of this stuff uh, on the website too. So it'll be there, as well as the, the talks on your website. And uh, hopefully, if you, if you need to go back to any of it, it'll be there. I'll also get some of it printed out eventually so that uh, you can, you can uh, have a record of it. Um, but anyhow, let's uh, lead, read some verses, as I say, from Acts chapter 10, which is one of those places where the gospel goes for the first time <laughs> to people who are not Christians and have not come out of any kind of Christian tradition. And this, of course, is Cornelius Centurion that uh, the apostle uh, Peter is sent to. And um, when he goes to Cornelius' house, he's probably staggered to find that he's in a room with a whole bunch of Gentiles for the first time in his life. Jews did not go into rooms <laughs> with Gentiles. You dealt with them one by one because, you know, too many Gentiles at one time are bad for the Constitution. So uh, it was always thought as a, a sinful to spend your time in a Gentile environment. But here were a bunch of people, Cornelius and his family and his household, who all wanted to hear about Jesus. And Peter, especially after the vision he'd done the day before, wasn't prepared to uh, let that go by. And so Cornelius speaks first, and he talks a little bit about what's going on in, uh, in him spiritually, and it becomes obvious that God is dealing with him. And in verse 34 of uh, chapter 10, Peter replies, then Peter began to speak, it says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We're witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And he starts to explain the gospel. And verse 44, he doesn't even reach the end of his sermon. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Interesting, interesting, isn't it? When you read about Peter, he never actually finishes a sermon. It's so annoying, it's frustrating. On the day of Pentecost, for instance, he's preaching in the open air. Um, you never get to the end of it because you, you, you hear how he starts. The first Christian sermon of all time. And uh, just as it's getting interesting, uh, Luke says, and with many other words, he persuaded them. We'll never know how he did it. You never reach the end. And it's the same thing here. But it's not Luke's fault this time. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? And so that's the basic vision of the New Testament as far as people from all sorts of different faith backgrounds is concerned. If God is dealing in their lives, it's through Jesus that they will receive salvation. And God doesn't show favoritism. He's not more interested in some nations, some cultures than others. God wants everybody to come to a knowledge of the truth. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on. So, um, what we've got to look at tonight is the underpinning of what we were talking about last week. We talked about the whole idea of doing all religions lead to God and just tried to, to, to see how incoherent a claim that actually is. It just doesn't add up when you, you try to make sense of it. 
And uh, what I want to do tonight is to look at some of the key passages that you ought to know about and, and be able to, to, to talk through with somebody else if you're going to explain where Christians stand on this issue. We need to get a biblical theology of other religions and how it all fits together with the gospel. And uh, also, uh, as, as Richard said, well, we, we, I, I always think it's good to have three points in your mind that you can make. And so I'll suggest what the three are. I've used many times in universities and other places, talking to Muslims and Sikhs and Hindus, and also other people who just want to believe that everything uh, leads in the general direction of God. And uh, I've, I've found them quite effective. But they're just suggestions. You are different from me. Your brain works differently. Thank goodness you're saying. And as a result, uh, you may well find other points much more useful. It's just an illustration of what I've, I found useful. You remember we were talking about... Uh, uh, the last question, if there's a God, why is a world full of suffering? We came up with three good reasons there. The fact that human beings are free to make choices which can impact other people and cause suffering. And God doesn't step in every time we do something wrong and sort it out there on the spot. He gives us the freedom to make mistakes. We talked about fixed laws. That was the second one. About the fact that this world is a world of fixed nat natural law. And God doesn't change those laws every time you do something wrong. Every cigarette you smoke takes three minutes off your life, statistically. But God can't see you about to light up and make the matchbox float away to the sky or something like that. He doesn't stop you. You can hurt yourself. You can hurt other people if you want to. And we said also, we're living in a frustrated world, a world in which you don't see things the way that God planned them, the way that God created them. God is not a God who works disasters and, and uh, fatal illnesses and car crashes and things like that. But we're living in a world which is groaning and travailing in pain, as the Apostle Paul said. And uh, as a result, you see suffering in a world which nonetheless was created by a good God who wants us to know his goodness. Um, so tonight, we're, we'll, we'll arrive at three points on the same kind of basis, but for this question as well. What key passages should you know? Well, let me just give you the five to start with that I've, I, uh, I found most useful, uh, although there are others, and... Uh, um, there were others I was tempted to put in. Um, it's not just verses, because sometimes a proof text doesn't do it. It's good to know about a whole passage and what the whole passage is saying, because that can be uh, much more useful than just having a few words that you've memorized. And that's a good thing to do. Memorizing verses is great. I've done it in Sunday school since the age of five. And, uh, you know, it's good to have the word of God in your mind and heart. But it's also good to know how it fits in context. So, at 17, it's where I would start. Um, and that's the whole story about how the Apostle Paul in Athens tries to explain his belief in Jesus and the resurrection to a bunch of people who've never heard this stuff before. Then there's Romans 1 and 2, and you'll see why that in a moment. We did study that one last year, and uh, in both chapter 1 and chapter 2, you find something that tells you a bit about how God deals with people who are coming from a non-Christian background. Third, there's 1 Timothy 2.13. I'm going to break my own principle here and give you one verse. But I think it's an important verse, and uh, focusing in on that is, is good. Acts 4.12 is another one, although others are available on 14.6, all sorts of things. But uh, we'll have a look at that one. And then finally, the whole message of Colossians chapter 1 about Jesus, that all feeds in as well. So that's where we're going with uh, to start off. Let's just have a look at those five passages. First of all is Acts 17. Uh, Acts 17, you remember, is when the Apostle Paul is in the... Acropolis in Athens. He's gone to Athens 
a bit uh, shell-shocked and weary from being thrown out of various cities um, where it just seemed the gospel was doing pretty well. He's there in Athens, and as he listens to some of the philosophers who are peddling their wares in the streets, Epicureans and Stoics and people like that, he uh, at first tries to say nothing, and then his spirit is provoked within him, the book of Acts says. And he thinks, I've got to say something here. So he starts arguing with those guys. And the end result is people say, whoa, this is interesting. We've never heard anything like this stuff before. Um, come and tell us about it. And so you have this uh, meeting of the Acropolis at which Paul uh, explains some of the basics of Christianity in the simplest way he can think of. Now, you notice a difference, as we said last year when we were going through Acts, uh, in the way that Paul speaks to a pagan audience to the way he speaks to a Jewish audience. Because when he's doing his normal stuff, going into the synagogue, speaking to people who've known all the Bible stories from their earliest years, he can start with the Bible and what God said through the Old Testament. These people have never heard of the Old Testament, or if they have, they've never read it, and so he's got to start with something very different. So that's the way he talks about it. He starts with God. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. There is only one God, says Paul, and you've already come into contact with him. He created you, and he gives you all you need day by day. Now, listen to what he goes on to say here in verse 26. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God is not far away from you, he says to the Greeks. He's all around you. The evidence is staring you in the face that he's there. And God has put you down at a certain point in history and a certain place on the map so that you can actually make contact with him. The real God who exists, who is invisible, who is not worshipped through temples and buildings made with hands, he wants you to know him. And the, the reason that you've been born where you are is not coincidence or chance. You're not just a random accident. God has deliberately put you down in a certain century and a certain place so that you might seek him and then reach out for him and find him. And so he goes on. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We shouldn't think that divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image made by human design and skill. And he's pointing the finger here at all the temples that he's seen throughout Athens. Statues and temples and all sorts of sacred buildings uh, in the pursuit of God and the gods. And he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In other words, God hasn't just created us and set us at different points in history, in the hope that by ourselves we'll start to find him, he's grieved as well that human beings have gone so far wrong as they actually have. And he wants us to repent, to turn around. The Greek word metanoia, to, uh, which is repentance, means literally turning around and going in the opposite direction to the one you're heading in. So God isn't content for a world in which some people are Sikhs and some people are Muslims and some people are Satanists and some people believe nothing. He's not happy with that. He wants everybody to turn around and find reality through the one God that makes sense. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And that, of course, is Jesus. 
Now that, I think, is the first key important passage because it tells us, first of all, this is what God is like. And also, secondly, what he expects from us. God is not happy for us to live in ignorance. God doesn't want us just to go through our whole life saying, is there a God, is there not? I don't know, I can't make it out, I can't wait. He wants us to know him. That's why he created us in the first place. God is a God of revelation, a God who delights to show what he's like to human beings, insofar as they can understand it. There are some things about God you will never understand, but he wants to reveal himself to you. That's because he loves us. And when you love, yourself, love someone, you want to reveal yourself to them, don't you? Uh, in all kinds of different ways. It's why boy and girl, when they're going out together, spend so much time just talking. Because what they're doing is discovering one another, talking to one another, finding out how one another's mind works. And sometimes it doesn't work, and then they break up, and one dumps the other, and whatever. But if it's, if, if it's uh, destined to last, then they, they just go on exploring one another for years and years. And okay, after 47 years of marriage, I'm still going around sometimes muttering, I will never understand that woman. <laughs> but, you know, the challenge of marriage, of being with somebody else, is that you've got um, somebody there whom you just delight to find out more about and, and invest more of your, your time and your understanding in. And uh, that's what God's like. He made us so that we can discover his reality and share a relationship with him in which he knows us through and through and we know more and more about him as time goes by. So that's what God's like and what he expects from us. Second passage, I think, is, is key behind all of this stuff, uh, is Romans chapters 1 and 2. What, two old chapters? Well, no, I'd pull out bits from it. You remember, if you remember Romans last year, that we talked about the fact that Paul starts by talking to the uh, people in Rome who think they're doing fine as Christians by saying the whole world is guilty before God. In the church in Rome, there were some people who uh, were pagans who turned to God from idols and they were now leading the church because the Jews had been thrown in AD 49 and uh, they thought a lot of themselves, but not as much as the Jews did. The Jews had come back. The Emperor Claudius was dead, and the Jews had come back and said, oh, I'll just go down to the little evangelical church I used to go to. Oh, my goodness me, it's gone really Gentile. Oh, what's going on in here? It doesn't look like a synagogue any longer. And, of course, it didn't, because the people who were non-Jews had been running the church for a few years, and they'd started dropping out all kinds of things that the Jews held dear, but they weren't really particularly interested in. And the Jews were starting to be tempted to put themselves on a different level and say, of course, we're the real people of God. <laughs> we're a lot better than you because to us came the revelation. We received the oracles of God in the Old Testament. God picked us out as the people who, who, who his word would be given to and through whom his son would come into the world. Didn't do that in Rome. Didn't do that in Turkey. Didn't do that anywhere else. Just us. So Jews are important. And Paul spends the first chapters of Romans trying to show that the whole world is sinful <laughs> and the whole world stands condemned before God. And that's the whole basis of the gospel. Everybody needs what Jesus came to bring. And so in uh, chapters 1 and 2, he says things like this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. This God that we read about in, 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 in Acts chapter 17, who wants us to know him because he's revealed himself to us, this God has taken steps to make himself available to us. And it should be obvious to us that there is a God there. 
what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. So what's going on? Why there are, are there so many people saying, oh, you can't know whether, whether God or not? So many people, I don't really believe in God. I can't see any evidence anywhere. Why is it that clever people are sometimes like that? Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, was once asked, um, okay, if you could stand before God and say one thing to him, what would you say? And in his funny, high, piping voice, Bertrand said, I should say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. And by which he went, I'm not convinced because you just haven't given me grounds for believing. But Roman says, yes, God has. And it talks about two things he's done. It goes on like this. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So people are without excuse. And as Paul says, if you look at the world properly, then you start to get a glimpse of the power and the awesomeness of God. Now, I mentioned, um, uh, was it last month? It's all getting to be a blur. I'm a very old person. Uh, a few weeks ago, I think, probably, the, uh, inst no, it was, it was last week, Alistair Hardy started this institute uh, for studying religious experience because of the experience he'd had as a small boy of kind of glimpsing some power in nature that he couldn't really understand. And uh, it's been shown by the, the Institute's work over the last few years that, quote, religious experience is biologically natural to human beings. People have it. Nobody is a natural-born atheist. People have a sense that God is around them. And sometimes it comes when they're standing on top, the top of a mountain and they look down the road and say, wow, what an incredible view. Sometimes when they see all the stars in the sky at night, sometimes when they're standing by the edge of the ocean, but through the world itself, through creation, comes this sense that we are dealing with something much bigger and more awesome than just ourselves. But it's not just that as well. Um, uh, Paul goes on into Romans chapter 2 and says this, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even if they do not have the law. He says, listen, it's not just you Jews who do what God says, because you know from the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments what God demands of you. You'll find that there are Gentiles who live pretty good lives as well. And I know, Christ I know uh, Muslims, I know Buddhists, uh, I know Hindus who live exemplary lives. One of my moms, when I was chaplain at school, in, in, in extra school, they put on a conference for the sixth form every year on religion. And uh, I used to get different kinds of speakers from Muslim backgrounds, Hindu backgrounds, all sorts of places coming in uh, to uh, speak to the, the kids and, uh, and debate with them. And uh, I've got to say that some of the people I met, met were extremely good, good people. I have a Muslim friend in Exeter a fellow called Shabir Ahmed, who um, came to speak to uh, the students in our student group at Belmont uh, one Sunday night. Uh, and uh, we wanted him to come to just talk about what it was like to be a Muslim so that we get a better understanding of it. And Shabir Ahmed is one of the really good guys. He's a wonderful person. He has a tremendous reputation with everybody. What slightly knocked me uh, for six was when he, he came to Belmont to, to the student group, it's an evening group, and he came to the end of the evening service and uh, he was just standing there in the concourse while people were having coffee and things like that. And he looked and he said, ah, oh, what a wonderful building. You know, John, every time I drive up Western Way, I thank God for Belmont Chapel. You're supposed to be a Muslim, remember? 
And he was just a very, very nice, open, open human being. And clearly the record he has of care for others, of doing good, and all sorts of other things, makes him a nice person. Paul says, how can that happen? And he says, well, listen, when Gentiles who don't have the law do the things that the, the law requires, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing this, and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. We all have a conscience. And God has written his basic law on human hearts. We know instinctively that it's wrong to be dishonest. We know instinctively it's wrong to oppress other people. We know instinctively it's wrong to do what doesn't belong to you. And whatever kind of culture you grew up in, you have a sense of right and wrong inside you. And sometimes your thoughts excuse you and think, oh, I did good there. That was the right thing to do. I feel good about myself. And sometimes your thoughts accuse you. You miserable failure. Look what you've just done. Oh, you've been again. Oh, I'm terrible. But we all have a conscience. And it keeps a commentary running in our heads, doesn't it? About what we're like and what we're, how we're doing. And it's based on standards which God has imprinted there. That is why you'll find all the major world religions have the same basic code of ethics. It's not surprising, is it? Because if God is truth and God is, 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 is justice and fairness and all of the things that he's supposed to be, then if we are made in his image, it will be written on our hearts, whatever our official religious code actually is. And so it's no argument for uh, all religions lead to God to say, well, look, they all have the golden rule, don't they? Buddhists have one version, Muslims have another, Muslims, but it all boils down to the same thing. Yes, the moral basis that we start from is the same, but that's because God has written it on everybody's heart. The ideas about God that spiral out from there, well, that can be something different. So Paul is saying there are two things, aren't there? There's creation and there's conscience. And those two things are two ways in which God makes his reality known to us. Through our conscience, we become aware, I, I'm accountable. I sometimes do what's right, I sometimes do what's wrong, but I feel an accountability outside myself. Who too? People don't always know. Philip Toynbee, for instance, who was a very honest atheist, used to say, if I reach the end of the day, and I've done something that I'm conscious has displeased somebody else, or has offended against my moral values, I have to sit down and think until I feel I've got out of it. And so he's sitting down, spending five minutes before he goes to bed, feeling sorry and saying sorry to who exactly? He doesn't believe in God. But he still feels this weight of moral guilt. And what Paul is saying here is that's supposed to push you in the direction of thinking, perhaps there's a judge, perhaps there's a lawgiver, perhaps there's somebody greater than me outside myself, and I'm accountable to him. So those two things are there, creation and conscience. Why is it then that people don't find God? Paul says it's because they push God away from themselves. God makes us aware of himself, but we push him away and invent more comfortable beliefs. If you go back to chapter 1, and one a slide I skipped over here, that's what he says there. Listen, for although they knew God, that's everybody in the world, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Because we cannot handle a God who knows all about us, because we find it's creepy, 
that this God of moral standards looks down on us and sees our imperfection, we'd rather push him away and worship something a little bit more comfortable. It's a bit like this, going back to where we were. God has got two ways of speaking to us, just through nature. First of all, there's conscience, our thoughts accusing and excusing us. Second, there's creation, the glory of God shown in the things he's created. But we find that difficult, and so the human race has forgotten those two things and gone off to worship idols instead. And by idols, we're not just talking about stone statues and totem poles and things like that. We're talking about the way that people worship their career, worship their relationships, worship their self-image, worship their bank account, worship all kinds of different <coughs> things, and find really reality in life by following those rather than by worshiping the true God. So, what does it say about uh, other religions? What does it say, first of all, before we get on to that one, what does it say about people who never hear the gospel? If it's true that the world is uh, guilty before God because we've got this evidence given to us that he's there and we don't actually follow it, what about people who have never heard the gospel? There are still people, many of them throughout the world, to whom the gospel has not yet come. And more than that, there are people in our own culture who think they understand Christianity and they've never really been confronted with the message of the gospel in a way that makes them think, whoa, this is something I have to decide about. They've never really heard. So what does God do with that? Does it mean that people go automatically to hell after they've heard because they've missed out on the one great thing that Jesus has supplied? Well, the Bible actually says very little about those who've never heard the good news. But there are three things I think that we can, we can, we can be sure of and hang on to. And uh, those three things simply are these. First of all, God is just. God is fair. He's not going to condemn people who never had a chance to respond. And if you never had a chance to hear about Jesus, if you lived in 15th century China or uh, 16th century Aztec culture in South America, you might think, well, these people never had a chance to find out about Jesus. But as we've seen in Acts 17, God chose the century we would live in and chose where geographically we would live so that we might seek after him and find him. Now, if these people are penalized because they never heard about Jesus, does that mean that they automatically get lost? If God is just, that cannot be the case. So, the second thing we know is that God loved. God cares about everybody. And we're going to have a look at some passages in a moment to say a bit more about that. And if God really does care about people, then he's not going to be looking for a chance to trip us up and condemn us just like that. Um, there was a, 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 a very great American philosopher who died uh, a few uh, years ago, a couple of years ago, called Dallas Willard, who was a, an evangelical Christian. And one of the things that Dallas Willard said that sticks with me is, nobody goes to hell on a technicality. God is not looking for something he can pick you up with. No, God is a God who wants people to come back to himself. He burns for people to know him. And so if there's the slightest half chance of getting you into heaven, God is going to take it. Because God wants everybody in the world to respond to him. He's the creator of everybody, and he doesn't play favorites. That's one of the verses that you find several times in the Bible. You don't find many things repeated six or seven times in the Bible, but this is one of them, that God is no respecter of persons. It means God doesn't have favorites. God cares for all of us. And if that's the case, then people who've never heard about Jesus can be safely in his hands. 
And the third thing, and I think this is this is the important thing, is that God is all knowing. He understands not just the things we've done, but also the things that we would have done if we got the chance to. And so God knows how those people would have responded if they had heard the critical message in the way that all of us have. If they'd been confronted with a choice, Jesus or no, heaven, hell, uh, then he knows exactly the kind of decision he would have taken. And so the Bible says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And we can leave people in that situation safely in God's hands. And I think if somebody raised this, this question in, in conversation with me, well, what about the people who've never heard the gospel? Are you Christians just saying they go straight to hell? Oh, that's terrible. That's, that's inhuman. These are the points I raise. Listen, God doesn't say anything about this stuff, but we do know this. And if God is just and God is love and God is all-knowing, then we can leave that to God to sort out. The important thing is, you have heard. <laughs> You're here right now, so what's your response? Anyhow, that's, uh, by the way, let's, let's move on to another passage because it all fits together. And the third passage I would use is this one verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is a bit where Paul is saying he wants men everywhere to hold up holy hands in prayer and to pray for people he might not think of praying for. He said kings and all of those in authority. I think, what? You want me to pray for the emperor Nero? There's a lost cause if there ever was one. And uh, he's talking about him. He's talking about the magistrates in, in Ephesus. He's talking about all sorts of people. And he says, I want you to do this so that we can live a quiet life and be able to share the message about Jesus with people. For... He says, and this is where this verse comes in, God our Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. In other words, God wants everybody. He wants all to come to himself. He might not get them because it depends on the choice that we make as, uh, as well as his sovereign grace. But, uh, and how it all works out, how your choice and his election fit together, we won't get into that one tonight. But uh, that's what First Timothy 2 makes clear, isn't it? That God wants everybody, however far they've wandered off into idolatry, however little they've, 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 they've uh, wanted to get to know him in the past, he wants them to come to him. And when people do come to him, it's through one source. There is only one way in which you can find salvation, and that is through Jesus there's another passage that uh, I, I, I sometimes bring in and use at this point, and that's Revelation chapter 5. Not very often, because Revelation just spooks people out. It's a book that uh, non-Christians find difficult to make much sense of. But Revelation 5 contains this incredible vision of heaven. Uh, John sees heaven open, and he looks in on a worship service that's going on. And he sees four and twenty elders and four animal-like things that he's never seen before and all sorts of Old Testament symbols going on there and they're worshipping around the throne of God and uh, then he sees the lamb seated on the throne the center of heaven's worship and then he sees every creature in heaven and on earth worshipping and he begins to realize he's looking at heaven in the future the way God wants it to be heaven and earth in perfect unity the whole of creation gathered around uh, 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 the lamb and the songs being sung to the Lamb. And here it is. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy, Jesus, the Lamb of God. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. And 
the vision that John gets is a vision of innumerable people from every single tribe and culture on this earth coming to stand in unity before the throne of God. And uh, so I think very often with the people I speak to about the gospel, the idea they have in the back of their heads is that Christians believe that only they will go to heaven and therefore heaven's going to be a very lonely place. And you'll hear people say, won't you, oh yeah, well, I don't really want to go to heaven. I'd rather go to hell because that's where all the fun people are going to be. <laughs> and they always say it as if they just thought of it themselves. It's the most boring thing you could... Uh, anyway, that's another issue. But uh, people often say that, don't they? And that's not the way it's going to be. There's going to be an innumerable multitude before the throne of God. God promised Abraham right at the start of the whole exercise that Abraham's children, God's family from, of human beings was going to be as many as the stars in the sky for multitudes, as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. Have you ever been down on the beach in Paynton and tried to count the, the, the grains of sand? Don't do it. You won't be finished by night time, that's for sure. And uh, that, that number is going to be saved, says the Bible. And so uh, clearly... Um, we're talking about something pretty big here, and it's important that people see that. So what does this passage tell us? Well, uh, and uh, the, the first Timothy one, God wants nobody to be lost, and he'll bring many sons and daughters to glory. It's going to work. Loads and loads of people are going to be there. God uh, wants everybody in creation to have a chance of accepting his mercy and being there. Then there's another single verse one, which is Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. And this is uh, from the, the, the talk that uh, Peter and John and, and others have when they're hauled in off the streets for preaching in the name of Jesus. And they say to the Jewish leaders who are threatening with all sorts of things, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which I must be saved. And okay, they're talking to the Jewish leadership, but they don't say there's no other name given to Jews by which we must be saved. They say given to mankind. In the whole of the world's religious systems, in the whole of the, the, the world's philosophy and thinking, there is nothing else that can rescue human beings but Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross is what will take people to heaven, whether they're conscious of it or not. And Jesus is the only effective source of rescue for humans in the universe. Let me be a little bit controversial for a minute here. I mentioned Shabir Ahmed a minute ago, and we had a really interesting evening with him when he came to speak to our uh, students about being a Muslim, because he's a very honest guy, and he spoke about the drawbacks with being a Muslim as well. And I remember um, Derek Burnside was there. He, uh, he's now the, the principal at Cape May Bible School. He was on our staff at Belmont at that point. I remember Derek asking him a good question at the end of the evening. He said, Shabir, you've been talking about the fact that you won't know until you get to paradise, whether you're allowed into paradise or not. You believe that at the end of your life, you'll have to cross a bridge separated between you and paradise. And if you've done enough good things, then the bridge will be wide and broad and you'll just stroll across it into paradise and that'll be fine. But if you haven't done enough good, if the evil in your life outweighs the bad, then you, you believe that bridge will shrink to the width of a pinhead and fall off into the pit of hell. How can you be sure you're going to paradise? He said, you know that you're a sinner. You know you've done wrong things. If God is a holy God, how can he allow anybody with a trace of impurity about him into his heaven? 
And Shabu said, very honestly, yes. He said, I know. He said, for me as a Muslim and for many others I know, that is the worst thing. <laughs> we just do not know. We live all of our lives in uncertainty. And he said, you're right, that with any impurity about us, there's no way we can get into paradise. But he said, some of us as Muslims believe very strongly in the grace of God. And he said, we just believe that somehow Allah is going to find a way of making it possible for us uh, with all of our sin, with all of our impurity, to be forgiven and come into his presence. And I thought straight away, whoo, this sounds just like Romans chapter 4. Because in Romans chapter 4, Paul speaks about Abraham and says, how does Abraham get to heaven then? Because he died many centuries before Jesus died on the cross. He never knew the name of Jesus. How is Abraham accepted by God? And the answer he comes to is this. Abraham trusted God and it was counted to him for righteousness. In other words, Abraham just knew that God was going to work it out. He didn't know how he was going to do it, but he believed that there was a God who had made promises to him, and God was going to keep those promises, and for all of his failure, and all of the things that he got wrong when he crashed and burned again, God was somehow going to find a way of dealing with all of that sin and wipe it out of the question. And it seems to me that there are people in world religions who are just conscious of their own sin and guilt and just believe very strongly that somehow there is a God who is going to sort all of that out and take them into his heaven. Does that mean they get there? There is nothing in the Bible to say so, <laughs> but it seems to me there's nothing in the Bible to deny it either. And I believe that before the throne of God, we'll see all kinds of people we didn't expect to see. And I wonder whether one of them will not be Shabir Ahmed. Anyway, that's controversial, but we'll just leave it that one there. If he's there, he's there through Jesus and no other way. The final passage then. Colossians chapter 1. And this is important because if Jesus is the only way to God, we need to re recognize that is true and, and just proclaim it um, in an unashamed way. Lots of people uh, try to, 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 to say that Christians are being arrogant when they say that Jesus is the only way. After all, there have been all of these gurus and prophets and miracle workers and, 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 and profound thinkers down through, through history. Why only Jesus? And it's true, there have been some great things written in the Hindu scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita. Some things that are true about God. The, uh, the Buddhist uh, uh, suras, the, 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 the Quran, all contain, along with a lot of other stuff, very important and profound insights into God. And that's just what you expect, isn't it? Because uh, non-Christian religion are a mixture of all kinds of different things. They contain some of the best of human thinking and other things which are purely cultural or, or, or wrong. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the, uh, when pagans offer sacrifices, they're actually offering those sacrifices to demons. <laughs> so there can be satanic involvement in other religions as well. It's a, just a complete mixture and a complete ragbag. But Jesus is unique, and Christians shouldn't be ashamed of that. There's a great book, uh, which I've got down there in the bag, but I won't bother getting it out. But Harold Netland, who is a scholar at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in America, very, very uh, knowledgeable man, and a guy as well who spent most of his life, until he took this job in, in America, as a missionary in Japan. <laughs> And so he's used to living and working and arguing in cultures where Jesus is just not recognized. And uh, um, his, his book uh, uh, is about 
Christianity and other religions and how the whole thing fits together. And he says, you know, very often Christians are a little bit shy to talk about Jesus. But you find when you get into conversation, the others know that Jesus is the elephant in the room. And Muslims and Hindus and everybody else, they're waiting for you to talk about Jesus because they know that Jesus is the center of your faith. What's more, they know that Jesus has been more influential in world history than any other single figure. They know, too, that Jesus has claims made about him by Christians which are greater than the claims that are made for the founder of any other religion in the world. And so they expect Jesus to be at the center of what you're talking about. And Colossians 1 is great because it introduces you to exactly what Jesus is about, doesn't it? In him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Picture of a universe that's got away from God. Sin has split everything, split people off from one another and from God and, and, and from creation itself, all being brought together and reconciled through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So what this passage is saying is no other founder of the religion has ever made claims as gigantic as those of Jesus. So you can dismiss them and say, I can't possibly accept that. Or you can accept them as truth, but you cannot ignore them. And as C.S. Lewis once said, the one thing you cannot just say is Jesus was a good man. Because that's not the claim. That's not what Christians believe about him. And either he was incredibly arrogant a complete megalomaniac, or else he was speaking the, the, the truth. There is no other way around about it. Okay, so if that's the biblical backdrop to what we're talking about today, the final question we've got to ask, or, and yeah, sense final question is, and I will be finished in five minutes at the very outside, is what are the three good reasons you'd use for talking about if all religions lead to God? I'll give you my three which, as I say, I've used many times in schools and universities and places like that. And uh, for me, it's worked, but uh, it's not for you. First of all, if all religions lead to God, we make nothing. <laughs> because all the religions conflict with one another. They all say different things about all of the important questions. Is there a God? How many is he, she, it, them? Uh, what is this God like? What does this God think about us? All of those questions that we had on the screen last week. They differ about all of those things. What happens to us when we die? Do we just melt into the ether somewhere, become a part of God and the infinitely extended rice pudding, as C.S. Lewis put it? Or do we come round for another shot? Do we reincarnate after life, after life, after life, after life, as many of the Eastern religions say? And Hindus would say, yes, yes, you do. And Buddhists would say, oh, you do, but not like the Hindus think. <laughs> and uh, is there a judgment after life? Christians say, yes, there is. And uh, Muslims say, yes, there is, but it's not like not Christians think. And, and uh, everything uh, that you could possibly consider important, every important question is a source of disagreement. So if all religions to God, none of them tell us very much about him, and we know nothing. Second point I would make is this. If all religions lead to God, then God doesn't care very much about us because he's not made himself very clear. If God really does want the human race to understand and relate to him, he's got to make himself clear in some way. And the whole idea of a God sitting up there on a cloud somewhere looking down on the earth and saying, dear, 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 the Muslims have got it all wrong, haven't they? <laughs> and look at what the Christians believe. Oh, has anybody ever been so misty? And the Buddhists, 
You don't have a clue. All these people are just guessing. Oh, well, let's invent, invent heresy and uh, uh, throw them all off course again. Yeah, yeah. That kind of God who just delights in confusing us is not a kind of God I particularly find attractive. But if God, if all religions lead to God, then that's the extent of God's care for us as well. Surely if there is a God who loves us, he'd have one way in which he revealed himself, one revelation that makes truth that holds true for everybody, one path to follow, one experience to share, which will gradually conquer more and more of the world in a more effective way than anything else. And that is exactly what's happened over the last 2,000 years with Christianity. But if all religions lead to God, we know nothing. God doesn't care. And the third thing I would say is Christianity is wrong. <laughs> because if, if, if there is a multitude of ways to God, then those Bible passages we've looked at tonight all say, no, it's not the, that, that way at all. So if Christianity is claiming one thing and reality is another way, then Christianity is spread completely. There is one religion you cannot believe, and that's the one that says this is the unique path to God. So I would point all of these things out and say, uh, if all religions lead to God, we know nothing. That allows you to start talking about what God really is like. If all religions lead to God, God doesn't care. That allows you to talk about the, the nature of God and the fact that he loves people and he wants to know them. He's a God of revelation. If all religions lead to God, Christianity is wrong. Again, that uh, allows you to talk, doesn't it, about the fact that you cannot claim to be a Christian and yet believe in all the world religions at the same time. It just doesn't work that way. The last thing, though, finally, the final, final last thing to say is uh, this one. Uh, we talked about working on your return so that you're not just answering questions from non-Christians, but you're actually challenging them. See, what I've often seen happen uh, when a non-Christian is arguing with a Christian is a non-Christian comes up with an argument and the Christian gives an answer. Uh, hmm, all right, here's another one. And they ask him another question and the Christian answers, hmm, all right, okay. Uh, here's another one. And he gives him another question the Christian answers that one, the non-Christian looks at his watch and says, oh, goodness me, I've got to catch the bus. And that's it. What you need to be able to do, if you're going to do people any good, is to turn their question around so that you're serving back at them. <laughs> what kinds of things could you say if you've been discussing this question of all religions lead to God? Well, here are a few ideas. First of all, you could just say, well, what do you make of Jesus' sense? Let's talk about Jesus. If Jesus is the center of the whole thing, how can you make sense of him unless he's God? Is he a megalomaniac? Or is he God himself? Was he telling the truth? Or was he completely deluded? Because there is no middle ground. Second thing you could say is, okay, since all the world's religions make different claims about God, us, and our future, how do you think we could work out what's true? What would be your basis for working out what a real, a real reliable religion is? I mean, how, how can you say, yes, this one is telling the truth, but all of these are not? What grounds would you use? That's a more theoretical question, but it works for some people. Third one, how do you think God feels about you? <laughs> what do you think God's attitude towards you is? Christians say there is a loving God who cares about you, who wants to know you, and wants to reveal himself to you so that you have a friendship, a relationship that goes on into eternity and just gets richer and better as time goes by. What kind of God do you believe in? How does he feel about you? And those are just ways of keeping the conversation going, but turning back on them so that you're working on your return. Okay, I think I have plenty of ideas for tonight. All religions lead to God? No, they don't. And there's good, good biblical and uh, argumentative ground for saying they don't. And leading on from that to an understanding of who Jesus really is. Time to hand back to Richard.